0: Anyway, chapter one of Revelation here tonight. Um, You know, if you go on vacation, you usually check the weather to see what kind of clothes you're going to pack and what you can expect while you're there. And this is basically what Revelation is, is it's kind of a spiritual weather check, you might say, because we should be prepared. We want to know what's coming, where we're going, and therefore we should prepare for that. And if you don't prepare, you might get there and find out that you only packed warm clothes or, you know, uh, summer clothes, but it's going to be 30 degrees in Florida. And it, you're, you're going to get there, but it's going to be uncomfortable. And I kind of think that's the way it is with Revelation, is part of what we're here to do is to be prepared so that when hard times do hit, you're not having to go from zero to 60, but that you're already, you've been fasting. And you can handle that rather than whining because your body is used to going without food for a day. You know, just as an example. And those are the kind of things that I think are wise for us to do. The Bible talked about fast days throughout their festivals and things like that. Well, when you did that throughout your year, you were already kind of prepared. And I know that I've gone times where it's been a year or two or longer that I hadn't fasted, and it really stinks to do it for a day. But after I do it a little while, and I have to fast a day, it's no big deal because you're kind of used to it. That You can train your body to do that. And so in a sense, that's what this is, is I think revelation should cause us to have that, that urgency that uh, makes us be prepared at all times not out of fear and we're going to talk about that but out of love and just wisdom responsibility so i think that we are going to be in a revival now when i say revival i don't mean the kind of revival that you hear about all the time and one thing you have to think about when we talk about revivals i think it was uh oh, I can't think of his name now that uh, talked about this, but I thought it was really good, that revivals take time. You know, when the Israelites were praying in the days of the judges, they were praying for deliverance, and God answered. And you know how he answered? He he brought Manoah a son. And he said, you know, you're going to have a son, Samuel. Well, Samuel was just going to be a baby. He wasn't going to bring deliverance for years. And sometimes when God answers our prayers, we have to realize that it might take years to see the fruition, but he's working. There may be Samuels right now in this room that are being raised up to be deliverers, to to be those that can be helpful, but, but it's going to take time because he's raising us up. But God is answering that prayer. And so revival doesn't happen at once, but God comes to him and says, I've heard your prayers. I've heard the prayers of the Israelites. They're they're crying out to me. Same thing with Moses. I've heard your prayers. And we have to wait for Moses to get to be 80 years old before we really get to see the fruition of God's promises being fulfilled, even though he was on it. And so we need to be patient. But I think we are in a revival. I think God is preparing a nation. He's preparing a church to stand up for some very difficult times ahead. And we just have to be patient, knowing He is working, even though you may not see it. There's stuff happening. And so, kind of think about that as well. Um, In essence, God brings up a new generation. And like I said, that new generation, our kids, it, sometimes we have this tendency to think that our, this generation is lost. I think if God is going to bring a revival, more than likely He's going to bring some of these young people. He's going to raise them up. And we need to be encouraging them. We need to be um, uh, you know, feeding into their lives because it seems like that's almost always where He brings it, is from that younger generation being raised up. So uh, when we look at today, we can see that this is why I think Satan is going after our young ones, because he knows that God can use them for a revival. And we are living in such a dark world where we see three out of five Americans today say there's no absolute truth. Three out of five. Four out of five Uh, or four out of every five millennials believe that. One out of every two Christians believe there is no absolute truth. So, we're in a dangerous spot. Facebook apparently gives us 71 genders to choose from. Crazy. We are in a dark world and we need a revival and we need to be crying out. I just want you to understand that as we cry out, God's answer might look much like what we're seeing here in Revelation. And if that happens, we shouldn't be the ones freaking out and being in fear. We should be the ones saying, come Lord Jesus, come. It's okay. We want you to come. We want things to fall apart if that's what it takes to bring revival. So, when we read Revelation, you've got to have the right mindset. We cannot have this narcissistic Facebook attitude when we go to read this book and try and figure out what does this have to do with me? I'm not saying that you can't apply it to your life, but I want you to know Revelation is much bigger than you. We should have an attitude of what is best for the church, what is best for the kingdom of God, as we look at the book of Revelation. And the other thing is, I want you to understand, as we're going to see as this book begins, it's not about you, it's about Jesus. It is a revelation of Jesus Christ, not a revelation of Brian Young, not a revelation of what Russia's going to do, you know, not a revelation of it, whether the, it's a pre-trib, mid-trib, or post-trib. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ. We'll talk about some of those things, and it's okay to, to think about those things, but if that is what you're looking to get out of this book, you're, you're going to miss the boat. Your goal shouldn't be so much of how does this apply to me and what am I going to do? What do I need to do to prepare? What am, uh, you know, am I going to suffer? Am I going to be persecuted? Am I going to be protected? Am I going to be sealed? Do I get to go? Do I not get to go? If that's what you're thinking about, you will miss the boat of what God has for you for a blessing in this book. This book is about Jesus and you will find comfort and strength in that. I guarantee it. As I said last week, it's a promise. And so, Revelation, as 99% of church people, I would say, uh, read it, they read it as a cheat code for the future. Almost like, I don't know, Christian, uh, what do you call it? Still didn't hear Cliff notes? Well, I suppose, yeah, I was thinking of the... the Uh, My brain just isn't working today, but fortune-telling. Yeah, thank you. Anyway, um, because of this, because it's going to be complicated in some ways, I really want to encourage you guys before we come to read the chapter that we're going to be talking about so that you can have the context. Save me the time of just reading the whole thing. And granted, we're not going to get through the whole chapter in one week, typically, but even if you have to read that second or read it a second time next week, you'll be blessed by that. And you're going to see there's even a promise for that in this book that it is a blessing. We'll talk about it when we get to it, but anyway, so just a little bit of homework for you before you come on Saturdays, read the chapter that we're in so that you are ready to just. Put the pieces together the more you repeat it the more you're going to understand the order of the book and the more that it's going to make sense because we're going to have to refer back to things sometimes and so if you do that and start studying this there will be a blessing in it if you're just coming to be fed by me you're going to miss the boat again you have to be in this yourself like i said this is the only book that gives a specific blessing for those who study and read and do what's in this book. And so, if you want to get out of this book what God really wants to pour into you, then you need to do your homework and don't just come expecting me to just tell you everything, okay? And like I said, you will indeed be blessed. So let's get started here. Revelation 1, verse 1 says this, As I said, the revelation of Jesus Christ that's all you need to know. This is the whole foundation right there. It isn't the revelation of end times. It's not the revelation of the rapture. It's not the revelation of of how I'm supposed to prepare. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him. So notice this, God gives the revelation to Jesus. Now, don't turn me off yet when I say this, but Did you know that Jesus doesn't know everything? I know, that almost sounds blasphemous. But he doesn't. I think he does now, in a sense. But, remember that Jesus gave up his heavenly home to come down in flesh. He was full God and full man. Remember when he was a baby, it said he grew in stature and wisdom. Jesus, as a boy, grew in wisdom. He didn't know everything. He said, well, but he knew like the woman who was caught in adultery, he knew he knew about the death, that's the revelation of God. And by the way, that's what the Holy Spirit gives access. To. It's that, that gift of knowledge that people can have, that gift of prophecy that people can have. You see, I think that Jesus was walking so closely with the Father that he could hear from his father. He didn't know it all, but he could, he could get it. Because he had access by the Spirit to the Father. And what blows my mind is you have that same access. I don't understand that fully. I'll be the first one to admit that. But let me tell you, he became full man. And now that same Spirit lives in you. And God does gift certain people to have that foreknowledge but we see that there is a revelation of Jesus that God gives to Jesus here. Now, again, I don't want to make it sound like you know Jesus is an idiot and he doesn't know the future. No, he does. In his glorified state now, I think he has full knowledge. But we see sometimes when they come to Jesus and they ask him about the end times, what does he say? No one knows the day or the hour. Not even the sun knew the day or the hour, right? I think he does now. We see after his resurrection, after his ascension, we see that he is asked that question again and he doesn't deny knowing that time. So in his glorified body, I think he now knows. Jesus studied. And that's what he expects us to do. He expects us to go to him to learn. And so here we see the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave to Jesus to show his servants, things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all things that he saw. So what I want you to see is God gives it to Jesus. Jesus gives it to the angels. The angels give it to John. John is going to give it to the churches. And now we get to get it from what he wrote to the churches. There's a hierarchy here. And it keeps kind of dwindling down to us. The other thing that I kind of find neat about this is why he gave it to us. Why is he giving John this revelation? Why... Are we getting this revelation? It says, he sent and signified by his angels to his servant. And then it says, and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all things that he saw. I'm going to take you back to Genesis here for a moment. I don't have a slide of it. But do you remember when Abraham and Sarah were there and the three angels came to visit him? He was about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, the angels were. And this is what it says, Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him, to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. What I love about that is this. God says, should I tell him what I'm going to do? That's in essence what's going to happen here. He's saying, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do. Why? Why does God want you to know what's going to happen? Because God has chosen you and all nations are going to be blessed through you because you are an offspring of Abraham. And he wants you to know, as he said here to Abraham, so that you can teach your children, that you will direct your children and your household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. That's in Genesis chapter 18, verses 17 and following there. I don't think it's any different for us. God is letting you in. He's letting the cat out of the bag. And by the way, I think it's in Amos, maybe, where he says that as well that the Lord does nothing without first telling his prophets, his servants, the prophets. I'm telling you, God is not going to let revelation unfold without first letting us in on it. You're going to know. You will know, because just like Abraham, he wants you to know so that you will direct your children. He wants you to have this urgency in your heart day after day, all throughout the centuries. Even if the events of Revelation don't unfold in your lifetime, he wants you to behave as if it's going to be. Because that's what keeps you teaching your children and keeping them prepared and keeping them from being sucked into the world. So he wants you. Because he wants you to do what is right and just, just like he told Abraham. In Romans thirteen verse eleven, here it says, "And do this, knowing that, or knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of the sleep, or out of sleep. For now, our salvation is nearer than when we first believed." That almost sounds like a duh statement, you know. Now it, it, it's, we're closer to the end than we were yesterday. Well, duh. But it's deeper than that. What he's saying is, is that our salvation is near. We need to live as if it is our last day. We need to live as if the end times are now. Because you need to wake up from your slumber. Wake up from this, this sleep of, of comfort and... American dream and live for Christ. Now, this word revelation, when we see the revelation of Jesus Christ in the Greek, it's apocalypsis, and it literally means an unveiling or revealing. What's it an unveiling of? We already covered that. Jesus. Okay. So that's the purpose of this book. When it says that he sent it uh, to his servant John to bore witness and whatnot, um, actually it's in verse 1 here, he gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. Some say soon take place. That word soon or shortly in the Greek, is it's actually, it, it, it's like tachon, like a, like a tachometer that we have in a car where it does your... Uh, rpms it 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 means not like it's going to happen like in the next five minutes soon but rather that it's going to happen rapidly once it begins and so first of all i think that that's important because we talked last week about different views of how we interpret revelation futurists and preterists and so on literalists well, the book of Revelation, if it was a preterist view that all of this happened in 70 AD, they kind of read this soon as if it was, it's going to happen like really soon in your generation. But that's not the, the, really the context of that word, soon. Instead, it's more of when the white horse is revealed the first seal of Revelation, it's going to be quick, relatively speaking. I don't know if that means five years, ten years, seven years. I I don't know. But I can tell you it won't be 2,000 years. Like some of these interpretations of Revelation are. That fits in line with that verse, and I can't remember where it is exactly, but where he says that, remember he was talking about John, and he says that... uh, some of you standing here will not die until you see the end coming, or whatever. This generation shall not pass until all these things happen. He wasn't saying, All right, John, you guys right here that you're gathered around, this generation right here, you guys aren't going to die until all these things happen. He wasn't saying that. He was saying, This generation that I'm telling you about of the future times, this generation, of Revelation will not pass until all of it happens. So I can tell you that it's all going to happen. The book of Revelation is going to pretty much be coming to fruition in one generation. Matthew Matthew 16, 28. Thank you. And so that's what we're seeing is soon. These things that will take place quickly is what he's saying here. 16.28 So, the time is at hand. We need to wake up and we need to be ready. We need to teach our children this. We need need them to realize their purpose in life. And it isn't of this world. Verse 3 says, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. I said that I want you to read this chapter before you come here. I also want you to read it out loud. Find a room, read it together as a spouse, a couple, whatever. Read it to your children. This word read here, literally in the Greek is to read out loud. There's a blessing in reading Scripture out loud. I think, number one, Satan hates it. Number two, when you read, at least when I do, when I read, I have a tendency to kind of like sometimes even skip words because I'm reading so fast and and, and I don't focus on every word. When I read out loud, every word gets said. There's something about reading out loud that, that there's a power in it, I believe. I think even praying out loud is a good thing. Uh, Again, it's not like you have to do that in order to be blessed, it's not like it's a a must, but I think there's a blessing in it to read the scriptures out loud. Like I said, it's the only book that has this blessing in it. I believe that it's kind of an unspoken thing that you're gonna be blessed in any book you read, But don't lose the fact that he says there is a special blessing. In those who read and hear, back in those days, a lot of people weren't reading it. They would only hear it. So, if you're listening to the audio Bible, that's okay, too. Yeah. But notice and don't lose the idea here, and keep those things which are written in it. That's important. For one thing, if you're not keeping it, you're not a believer. Therefore, a non-believer is not going to get the blessings of this book. They can hear it, they can read it, but if they're not doing it, there's no blessing in it. This is ensuring, in a sense, that the blessing is for those who believe. Because they are the ones that will do, an obedient believer but keeping that means there's a condition to this blessing this blessing is conditional you can read this book and you can do it because it's a goal to finish i wanted to read the bible in a year and so you're done and you got it done and you might not get a blessing in it because the goal was to just finish There's more than just hearing. There's more than just reading. You need to take it to heart. You need to internalize it. And what's very interesting to me is outside of once we get done with the churches in chapter 3 and 4, there's really hardly anything for commands in the book of Revelation. And yet it's saying to keep what it tells you to do you are going to see seven blessings where it says here, blessed is he who reads. Remember I said there are 54 different sevens in Revelation? One of them are, there's 54 ble- or seven blessings. I've got them listed here. In chapter 14, verse 13, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Chapter 16, verse 15, look, I come like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains clothed. I think I mentioned last week, I I get so tired of hearing Christians say that, well, he's coming like a thief in the night. And I say, what, you're not a Christian? What do you mean? Well, he's coming like a thief to non-believers, not to Christians. Read the very next verse. But you brothers are to be on guard so that this day should not surprise you. I can't tell you how many Christians say, well, everybody, my grandparents thought the end was coming, so, you know, whatever. But I don't need to study it because everybody thinks so, so I'm just going to let happen what happens. That is the wrong attitude. That is not what Revelation is about. He says, be on guard so that this day should not surprise you. You're supposed to be watching. Just like this blessing here, you are supposed to stay awake. You are supposed to remain clothed. That means doing good works. Your clothing is righteousness. The the righteous acts of the saints. So if you're not living out your faith, doing good works, you've fallen asleep. That's what it's saying. Chapter 19, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper. Chapter 20, verse 6, Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection 22 verse 7 blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book there's that word keeping again chapter 22 verse 14 blessed are those who do his commandments so those are the seven blessings that we see going on and what's that, that was only six. Uh, there's six there and the seventh is chapter one verse three yeah all right verse four John, to the seven churches which are in Asia. Here again is another seven. John is really, he was an apostle to these seven churches as well. Paul Paul wrote seven letters to seven churches. Which we have here. John is going to write one letter that is sent to all seven churches. So... What that means, I don't know, just a little bit of a comparison. But we're giving, being given here the author and the audience of this book. Now, I believe, now some say that this is just a symbol of seven is a, a number of completeness, and therefore this is just a letter to all churches throughout all time. Like I said last week, yes, but no. Okay, I believe in all all of these different interpretations have truth to them. It is symbolically a, a representation of this letter going to all churches, but it is seven literal churches. Don't lose the literal aspect of it either. There's no question about that. And I think last week I gave the example of a wedding ring. This is a literal ring but it's symbolic of unity and marriage and all of that, right? It's both. It's literal, but it's symbolic. Don't lose that either. Anyway, um, one of the things that I find fascinating is that these seven churches that we're going to talk about, a lot of them there in Galatia and whatnot, you're going to see that this was the hotbed of Christianity in these days. I mean, this was the church. This is where Christianity is going out from. And yet today, these churches in Turkey, less than 2% are Christian. And you're going to see some of the things that if you do not repent, if you do not, I'm going to take and remove my lampstand from you. He's going to remove the church. And it's sad to see that what was the hotbed of Christianity today is pretty dark hardly any Christians at all most of it is actually Muslim and so we'll touch on that as we go too. but just keep that in mind revelation 1 4 and the second part says grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ the faithful witness the firstborn from the dead in the ruler over the kings of the earth. Starts out by saying grace to you. What's kind of neat here is in Revelation 22 you're going to see the book is going to end with grace. It begins with grace, it ends with grace. Chapter 22 verse 21, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Here grace and peace, grace to you and peace from him who is and was and is to come. As I've said many times, guys, as we seek to obey God, you are going to only receive as much grace as you allow yourself to, to receive. If I try to, to keep the Sabbath, because I, am just what I, you know, I feel guilty if I don't, I, I'm trying to be good enough, you're going to miss out on the grace. You miss out on the blessing of it. But if you keep the Sabbath... Just because it is a natural response of grace, a natural response of thanksgiving and seeking Him, you receive that peace. You receive a blessing from it. When we are obeying God in grace, that's when we receive peace. If you're stressed out about obeying God, if you are feeling... I want to say guilty, but I don't want to say guilty because sometimes that conscience is being pricked by the Holy Spirit and that's a good thing. But if you are living in a, in a state of works righteousness and con- condemnation and all of that, you're beating yourself up. You're missing out on the peace because you're not walking in grace. Does that make sense? You have to be walking in grace to experience the peace. So out of want, not the necessity of need. Exactly. Yes, out of a want, not need, have to, and that's what makes it so difficult to do what i teach or what scripture teaches and why the church is you know often against this idea idea of obedience is because the exact same act of obedience can be sinful it can be right and peace and grace-filled in the same act this by the same person but with a different attitude can be unpeaceful it can be sinful Legalistic, wrong, and that's why it's just—it's it, difficult to teach because it's not a black and white. Oh, you have to do this, but yet I could say you need to do this, and it can be a good thing. So, grace to you and peace. But you're only going to have as much peace as you understand grace. Well it is from the one who is, who was, and who is to come. That's identifying three different eras here. The past, the present, and the future. Some say kind of a trinity is seen there as well. I I don't know. But... um, we often have a, an idea here, this, this title, this one who is and who was and is to come, you're going to see that it, it, it's going to appear many times. One of my favorite times is when it appears the last time, it's going to see, say, bless, uh, from the one who is and who was. And it will not say who is to come. And I think, oh, that is going to be so awesome when, when we can say that. There is no more future. Faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Why? Because faith is going to disappear. Hope, it's going to disappear. There will be a day when we have no more faith because it has been fulfilled. We will have no more hope because who hopes for what he already has? But love will be eternal. And that is why out of faith, hope, and love, the greatest of these is love. Because love never ends. There's a day, though, when we won't walk by faith, we'll walk by sight. We will no longer hope and long for the day because we are in the day. And man, I'll tell you, that just gives me excitement. The other thing is we often think about Jesus coming back. And this is a difficulty in the book of Revelation and partly because of the whole idea of the Trinity is we have a tendency as we think of the Trinity to separate these there's jesus there's god the father you know they're on two thrones all of this kind of thing and and it's easy in our mind to to have a separation but when we see the way revelation is going to talk about this most of the time we just picture jesus coming back but when we see the prophecies and you look at it many times the word yahweh is used that it's yahweh that's going to put his feet on mount zion in other places it's Yeshua, Jesus, that's putting his feet on Mount Zion. And that's because, as Jesus said, I and the Father are one. And so as you read these things, don't separate it. You need to keep in mind that God is one. And Yahweh is coming back as well as Yeshua. Zechariah 14, if you want, I'm not going to go there, but uh, verses 1 through 9 will show you that it is Yahweh coming back. And that would be the Father, God the Father. Here, we don't see specifically the Father mentioned, but the one who is and who was and who is to come would fit the Father as well as it would fit Jesus. And so that trinity... We can't wrap our mind around it. God is one. And so just kind of have that mindset. Don't just picture Jesus coming back, but Yahweh as well. Now, Isaiah 11.1, 1, I want to look at this from the seven spirits because I remember years ago when I studied this, I thought, wait a minute, seven spirits of God? I thought there was only one Holy Spirit. But here it says there are seven spirits of God. Well, most commentators will tell you that it might be this sevenfold characteristic of the one Holy Spirit. And we get this in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1 and following. It says, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse. This rod is going to be a branch that's going to come up from Jesse. It's a prophecy of the Messiah. A branch shall grow out of, its, out of his roots... The Spirit of the Lord, there's number one, shall rest upon Him. The Spirit of wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, and of the fear of the Lord. Seven different aspects of the Holy Spirit. We know that in the tabernacle, as well as in the temple, there was the menorah. And I actually put this in yesterday and then I did it on my other computer, and so now it's not on this computer, but I had a picture of the menorah for you. And we see that the menorah had seven branches. And we see that that is a picture of the Holy Spirit. The oil that was on the menorah, the seven branches seem to be the seven aspects or the seven spirit of God. So, for whatever that's worth, We see uh, Zechariah 4 verse two. I'm not going to go there, but uh, also verse 10 explains the seven eyes of chapter 5 verse six there too. but I'm not going to go there, but just to, just for so I want you to basically remember that there are seven aspects or characteristics of the one spirit. That's my goal for you tonight. Verse 5, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. We're going to look at each one of those titles here. Okay, from the Spirit, from Jesus, the one who is, who was, who is to come. We're seeing the Trinity, like I said. But let's look at this faithful witness first. In Isaiah 55, verse 4. It says, indeed, I have given him as a witness to the people, a leader and a commander for the people. Or John 18:37, you say rightly that I am a king. Jesus is speaking here. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. That was his role, was to bear witness to the truth. Part of that was be dying on the cross, of course. Romans 6.9, Christ having been raised from the dead, dies no more. He is going to be the firstborn from the dead. He cannot die again. Um, Colossians 1.18, He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He may have the preeminence. What I hope you're seeing already is we're just getting started in this book and we're seeing that it's nothing new. Alright, so there shouldn't be anything difficult to understand about this because Romans is talking about it, Colossians is talking about it, John is talking about it. There's nothing difficult about this. This is the way the entire book of Revelation is going to be. And that's why when people say we can't understand Revelation, uh, then apparently you can't understand any of the Bible. Therefore, maybe you should be reading your Bible a little bit more and studying it a little bit more. What I love about the book of Revelation is it's almost like he wraps it all up and says here, if you can understand this, then that means you're going to be studying the rest of the 65 books, right? Right? And then you're going to understand this. It's almost like I'm going to give you this so that you'll search the rest. And in searching the rest, you'll understand this. Because, like I said, over 400 times you're going to see in 22 chapters. Think about that. Only 22 chapters and you're going to have 400 references to other books. That pretty much tells you the whole thing is already written. It's just expounding upon it, you might say. So we also see here um, this word for witness, this faithful witness. The word there is martis, from which we get the word martyr from. He was a faithful witness showing that in his witnessing, how he did it was that he was martyred in a sense he set an example for us that's the attitude if we're going to be a witness for christ we should have an attitude of martyrdom so like cassie whoever it was years ago you know in the school who who remembers her name cassie yeah from columbine and rachel scott i'll never forget at the time seeing the video that they would show, uh, I don't remember if it was Rachel or Cassie, but you can see her literally nod her head yes before the gunman shot her. We have to have that attitude. Maybe revelation isn't going to be fulfilled in your lifetime, but you don't know if you have tomorrow. You don't know what could happen and you need to have that attitude of martyrdom each and every day that you go to work because that's how we are going to be a faithful witness that we would not shrink back from death that we would not love this life or this world so much as to shrink back from death that's the example Christ is setting for us here and as far as being firstborn from the dead it doesn't just mean the first to rise from the grave because Lazarus rose before Jesus did. Elijah raised that boy from the dead. So it's not talking about the first one to ever have been raised from the dead here. This is more of an office of being the firstborn. And that'll kind of come into play later, so I'll leave it at that. But um, You want to know who God is? Then you need to know who Jesus is, right? That's what he told his disciples. He is the faithful witness. Therefore, we need to understand what it means to be a faithful witness. If you were to disciple somebody, if you were going to be a disciple of a a rabbi in the days of Christ, what you would do is imitate them. You'd follow them. You would do what they did. And not only was it the highest form of respect, but that's how you got to know the person that you were following. And so that whole, what did Jesus do? What would Jesus do? What did he do? There's there's some reality to that, that that's what we are supposed to be doing, is walking as he walked. Because that's how we get to know him. And when we get to know him, you get to know the Father. And I find it interesting, you know, we often hear, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. So you can't get to Jesus unless the Father draws you. But it also says you cannot come or know the Father unless you go through Jesus. What I like about that is, first of all, you can't know Jesus unless you know the Father. We kind of tend to think the Father, Ten Commandments. Jesus, love, and grace, right? But in a sense, there's some truth to that. You can't know Jesus unless you know the Father, what the Father commands. Jesus only did what the Father said to do. That's why commandments are good. It's not a means of getting salvation. It's a means of getting to know Jesus, knowing the Father. When you know the Father... You know the Son. When you know the Son, you know the Father. Jesus, Hebrews tells us, was an exact representation of the Father. That means He did what His Father said. That's what we should strive to do as well, imitate Him. Ruler over the kings of the earth. The Greek word there is archon. It means first or chief. Um, 1 Timothy 6.15 says he who is the blessed and only potentate the king of kings and lord of lords that's who Jesus is the only all powerful potentate Revelation 19.6 later it's going to tell us he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written king of kings Lord of lords. And so, that's what this ruler over the kings of the earth is. There is nobody greater. There is nobody that ties with him. He is king of kings. Second part of this verse says, To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion Forever and ever. Amen. Notice that he has made us kings and priests to his God. This goes back to what we've talked about when we went through the book of Hebrews. This was a promise that was given only to Israel. And so now he's saying to us, we become kings. We become priests. In other words, the promises that were given to Israel, we now are grafted in and we receive the same blessing, the same nourishing sap, as Romans would say. We are blessed because we are grafted in. Uh, the twofold doxology here glory and dominion. There's going to be an order and a pattern to this. You will see that right here it is a twofold doxology. To him be glory and dominion. We're going to see in chapter 4 verse 11 a threefold doxology. Glory, dominion, and I don't know if it's honor, but you're going to see it's threefold. And then when we get to chapter 5 verse 13 it is going to be a sevenfold I'm sorry, 5 verse 13, it's fourfold. And then in chapter 7 verse 12, it becomes sevenfold. So, two patterns. And I haven't really gone through the patterns yet. We're going to get to that next week. But there's going to be a pattern in these sevens. Four, two, one. And it's interesting that we see it goes from the four to the seventh. But it leads up two, three, four, and then boom, to the final seven. So just take note of that. When we get to the patterns next week, we're just getting an introduction here today. When we get to those patterns, you're going to watch for those things. But notice one, two, three, or two, three, four, and then sevenfold. Uh, Ezekiel 44 Talks about the roles of the priest in the temple. It says that we are being made as kings and priests. You might remember that I did a message on are you a priest of Zadok or a priest of Abiathar? And in Ezekiel 44, it talks about the priests of Zadok and how Zadok were the priests that followed God's commands and they get to minister before the Lord. But the priests of Abiathar, they were the ones that compromised. And they minister to the people, not to the Lord. Those that are the priests of Zadok that are faithful are in the Lord's presence right next to Him. Those that don't are still serving, but they are outside a little bit. You might want to go look at that in Ezekiel 44, but it seems that Gentile believers, those that are grafted in, and I don't understand all of this, but it seems that they are not going to be performing the priestly roles in the millennial kingdom. I don't get it. I just It just seems what it's saying there. It's unclear what the the role of Gentiles as priests is going to be. But there's some separation there in Ezekiel 44. 1 Peter 2.5, on the other hand, tells us this though. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. So you are being made into a priesthood to offer up spirit. Spiritual sacrifice is acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Okay. What does that mean? Well, I think there's a couple of things. Number one, Romans says that we now offer ourselves. We offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, for this is your spiritual act of worship. And so in saying no to this world and all that it has to offer and offering our bodies as living sacrifices you know uh, serving our children serving our our family, serving our loved ones serving our enemies in doing that you are in some sense living out the role of a priest offering your body as a living sacrifice holy and pleasing to god for this is your spiritual act of worship Notice here it says that this is a spiritual sacrifice that's acceptable to God. So maybe that's what it means for a Gentile to be a priest. And that the the Jews' DNA that believe in Jesus, that that priestly line will be the ones that are actually going to be ministering before God in some way. I don't know. Just a thought, just something to think about. Exodus 19.6 also said this. This is not just a New Testament thing. It's an Old Testament thing. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. He wasn't just talking to the Levites there. He was saying you're going to become a kingdom of priests. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So even way back then, you had people that weren't Levites And they were told, all the children of Israel, you are going to become a kingdom of priests. And now in the New Testament, in Peter, he's saying, you're a kingdom of priests. And we understand what he was saying there. How you live your life, how you offer yourselves to me, is being in a priesthood. Verse 7. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. This we're going to look at more later when we get to chapter 12. I don't know what to make with all of it, but it might help us identify some things. But just note for now, he's coming with clouds here. There may be kind of two different things we have a tendency to lump this all together every time we see the Lord in the clouds that it's all this one thing. There may be the time when he appears but does not set his feet down on Mount Zion. And then there's the time where he's going to put his feet on Mount Zion. Okay? An appearing and a coming back what I want you to see, behold, he is coming with clouds. Matthew twenty four thirty. Look what it says. Then the sign of the son of man will appear in heaven. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Okay. It may not mean anything, but it might. So I just want to point out the difference here. Matthew twenty-six: Hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Power, and coming on the clouds of heaven. First Thessalonians four seventeen: Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Daniel seven talking about this he says behold one like the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven so we see that god's presence is in the clouds in exodus right in in chapter 13 uh, verse 21 we see uh, anytime the shekinah glory is there the cloud he is in that cloud he's on mount sinai in exodus chapter 19 when the 10 commandments are being given he is in the clouds at the transfiguration, in Matthew chapter 17, there is a thick cloud. He is in the clouds. It gave them shade in the day. You know, we often see these little pictures with this little, nice little, you know, pillar that might shade, you know, the, a couple of tents. But it said it gave them, the, the Israelites. So you've got to picture this monstrous pillar of cloud, which I would say seems more cumulonimbus-like yeah. than some cirracy. Your wispy things. So whatever that's worth. But I, I see something more powerful. Some say he's coming with the clouds, meaning that he's coming with the saints. Possible. Might mean both. Um, because the saints are sometimes talked about as clouds. For example, here in Hebrews 12:1, therefore we also, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses... I think that that's the symbolism of it, but I also think there is the literal aspect. Remember when Jesus ascended, he went up into the clouds. I don't think that the you know the disciples watching him ascend into the clouds were saying, oh, there's Grandma and Grandpa. You know they were seeing literal clouds. And it says he's going to come back the same way you saw him go. So I think it's both, not option one or Or two, but rather both of them. It says, Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, Amen. For whatever that's worth, just something to think about, I guess. We're going to wrap up here soon. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So here again, we see it mentioned a second time, who is, who was, and who is to come, except for it adds one thing, the Almighty. This phrase, Almighty, is used 12 times in the New Testament. Nine of those times are here in Revelation. The only other three are in Romans chapter 9, verse 29, Second Corinthians chapter six, verse 18. And James chapter five, verse four. The other ones in Revelation I have down here. But it's now, it's building. The one who is, who was, who is to come. And now it's the almighty. Now this word almighty is, it's like a cosmic God. It, it, King of kings, Lord of lords, but not just of earth of heaven and earth. So it's a very strong, strong description of him. Verse 9, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patient of Jesus Christ was on the island that is, in, that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. I'm not going to get into the churches tonight. That's where we're going to start picking up next week. But for now... A little bit about Patmos. Today, you go to the island of Patmos. It's beautiful. It's uh, really kind of a neat thing to see. But when John was there, it wasn't a vacation island. It was prison. This is not oh beautiful, you know, because when when I was there, you look down, it's like man, this would be kind of (laughs) nice. That wasn't the case. It was isolation. Uh, it It would have been a very difficult time for him. But the Lord was ministering to him. It is basically an island that is about four by eight miles. So nothing too terribly large. It's out in the Aegean Sea. And as I said last week, Domitian had him exiled here. Again, just to remind you from our conversation of last week... This means that when Domitian is ruling, this is after 70 AD, after the destruction of Jerusalem. And therefore, the whole idea of a preterist view and that revelation is fulfilled in 70 AD does not fit. Um, Eusebius, early church father, he writes that John was released by the emperor Nerva, Nerva ruled from 96 to 98 AD. So last week I mentioned Polycarp, a disciple of John, said that he was on this island during the time of Domitian. Now we have Eusebius, a second historical source, telling us he's released in 96 to 98 AD, which means you've got two sources saying there's no way that this is written before 70 AD. That destroys the preterist... Uh, interpretation as a a main interpretation of revelation when it says here that it was on the Lord's day there's a lot of commentary written on what this means some say it was Sunday that that's the Lord's day that's about the only one that I'm going to say there's no way that was what he was talking about it was not Sunday most people will say it was probably the Sabbath But it doesn't say the Sabbath. It just says the Lord's day. But we know that the Sabbath is called my Sabbath, the Lord's Sabbath. It seems to be that that is God's day, is the Sabbath. So I tend to think that it is the Sabbath, but the way that it's used here, there's nowhere else in Scripture that that word is used. So we have nothing to say for sure. This word church is ecclesia, and don't think of your view of church today. It simply means an assembly, um, a congregation, a a gathering. It's not a building. It's not necessarily a denomination. It is just an assembly of people. The churches that are mentioned here, they're going to be in a geographical circle. We'll talk about that when we get into them roughly not identical but roughly about 50 miles apart there is order to what he's saying here next week we're going to get into that order a little bit more and you will be amazed at how orderly this book is this is just a basic introduction that we're getting tonight it's going to get more orderly and this is the beginning of it but it will start and just kind of go around In uh, about 50 miles each in a circle to complete the circle around. So with that, we are going to close tonight and we will pick up on uh, verse 12 next week. But for now, that will give you some things to meditate and think about and remember to read chapter 1 next week. And that way we're going to have it all together. But I think from here on out, it really starts coming together because the basic intro is over now. So, all right. We'll close in prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you again for uh, just being the one who is, who was, and who is to come. God, we just pray, come Lord Jesus, that we can someday just say the one who is and who was. Lord, that we would be able to reign with you, that we would be a kingdom of priests, but until that day comes, Lord, may we serve you, offering our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to you, that this would indeed be our spiritual act of worship, that we would not be distracted by the cares of this world, that we would not be priests serving other gods and the God of this world, but that we would be just of one mind with you, and that we would imitate you, to follow you, to know you more, and to uh, not know what you require, because what you require has already been done, but that we would know what pleases you, and that we would find peace in your grace that you offer us each and every day. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.